Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the executive director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry to audiences around the world. Each week we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who's been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry, or perhaps even a recording of Henry Nouwen himself. We invite you to share the daily meditations in these podcasts with your friends and family. Through them, we can continue to introduce new audiences to the writings and teachings of Henry Nouwen and remind each listener that they're a beloved child of God. Now, let me take a moment to introduce today's guest. Today on the podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Reverend Adam Russell Taylor. Adam is the president of Sojourners, and he's the author of a wonderful new book, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. Let me share with you a little of Adam's background. Previously, Adam led the Faith Initiative at the World Bank Group, and he served as president in charge of advocacy work at World Vision USA, as well as being a senior political director of Sojourners. He has also served as the executive director of Global Justice, an organization that educates and mobilizes students around global human rights and economic justice. He was selected in 2009 for the class of White House Fellows and served in the White House Office of Cabinet Affairs and Public Engagement. Taylor's a graduate of Emory, the Harvard University Kennedy School of Government, and the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology. Today, we're going to focus on this new book, A More Perfect Union. I love what Bishop Michael Curry says about the book. There are books that are worth reading, and then there are books like this one that desperately need to be read by as many people as possible. I concur with his assessment, and that is where I want to start. Though the book focuses primarily on issues facing the United States, the vision it articulates goes way beyond the borders of America. Adam shares his vision of building the beloved community, and I think people of faith and vision will be inspired to see this lived everywhere in the world. Adam Russell Taylor, welcome to Henry Now and Now and Then. Thank you. It's such an honor to be with you. Adam, in this book, you share a bold transformational vision to replace the politics of fear, division, and contempt that seem to dominate America today. Tell us about the beloved community. Where did this concept come from? Yeah, so the beloved community moral vision really animated the civil rights struggle in the United States. And its origins really start with Josiah Royce, who was one of the leaders and founders of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. So he kind of coined the term the beloved community. And Dr. Martha Luther King was a member of the Fellowship of Reconciliation and certainly built on much of what Royce taught about it, but then kind of took it a step further and really universalized the concept. So to Dr. King, the beloved community was about a deep commitment to nonviolence, a deep commitment to agape love, so kind of unconditional selfless love. It was about a deep commitment to equality, which is so ingrained not just in kind of the Constitution of the United States, but also in our faith traditions, including our Christian faith tradition. And so I, I really tried to build on so much of what Dr. King and then other civil rights leaders like Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker and John Lewis had to say about the beloved community. And I really feel like that moral vision is an extremely healing one. It's an extremely unifying one, and it's an extremely transformational one, in part because it is able to transcend so much of the brokenness of our current political dialogue and debate. And it taps into, you know, some of the best wells of both the, you know, traditionally progressive tradition as well as the conservative tradition. So it emphasizes both a commitment to community and the, the bonds of community as being really, really essential and, you know, emphasizing the, the role of responsibility in the midst of that but also places an emphasis on human dignity and protecting people's fundamental rights and a big emphasis on inclusion. My own remix of what the beloved community means for us today is building a society where neither punishment nor privilege is tied to race, to ethnicity, to class, to gender, to sexual orientation. And it's creating a society, nation, and a world where everyone is valued, everyone is seen, everyone has a voice, and where everyone is enabled to thrive and realize their God-given potential. And, you know, I know that's a big vision, if you will, but I think it's really one that would resonate with 
the vast majority of people across the world. And I think we're in desperate need of a more positive moral vision about what we want to co-create together. For our audience, I, I'd love to share with them the reality that Henry Nouwen was so um, drawn to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision. He marched to Montgomery, and he was also there to march in, in King's funeral because this was one of the great influences in his life. And it's interesting because when I hear Henry use the theme, the word beloved, the, the discovery that every human being is a beloved child of God, I often wonder, did he bring it from that place as well? I know that he found it in scripture, and I know it was very related to the baptism of Jesus, but but I just I just know that if Henry were here today, he would want to be talking to you, and he would want to see what we could do to be part of this. Um, the other reality that I feel very linked to you in is the reality that there was a long history of relationship between Jim uh, Wallace and Henry, and, and the early roots of sojourners. And I think Wallace would have been challenging Henry to be more active, and Henry would have been challenging all the people on the front line to be really grounded in their faith as well, so that they they brought that, um, the roots of it, right into their activism. It is an amazing thing right now, the reality of the radical polarization in America. And your book arrives in the midst of a pandemic, which has really turned the world upside down. When you set out, were these conditions in place or did they kind of magnify during the time of your writing this book? Certainly, you are. the book is so current and it so speaks to these issues. Yeah, well, I'm really grateful that you think so. And, and I'll admit, a little small confession, I wrote the majority of the book before the pandemic and before what I refer to as a racial awakening summer, at least the partial racial awakening summer in 2022, the horrific murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and others. And so I felt it was imperative to kind of rewrite and add some additional content to the book. So the, the original publishing date got delayed a little bit, but I ultimately think that that made it a stronger and hopefully more timely book. But the themes that I was wrestling with even before the pandemic were the exact kind of commitments and themes that I felt are so essential for how we understand the pandemic. And more importantly, how do we navigate and overcome this pandemic in a way that helps us to co-create together a radically new normal? You know, there's a risk that we'll just try to go back to what was a very broken normal. But what I try to emphasize in the book and what I've you know kind of emphasized in my own thinking about the pandemic is that it really is this kind of apocalyptic moment that reveals or has revealed so much about ourselves, so much about the inequality in our society. If we look at who has disproportionately been infected and has died of COVID and of course around the world in terms of who has access to vaccines right now and who doesn't, but it's also revealed a lot of our brokenness in terms of human relationship where, you know, somehow the simple act of wearing a mask became another casualty of our culture wars and became completely partisanized and politicized so that, you know, many people saw wearing a mask as somehow a front on their personal liberty. Well, I have tried to argue that it really is about a commitment to the golden rule of loving and protecting ourselves as well as our neighbors. So, you know, those are some of the things that I kind of touch on in the book. And, and one of the, what I call the Beatitudes of building the beloved community. So these are the kind of the core commitments and markers that I think are essential to helping us build the beloved community is what I describe as Ubuntu interdependence, drawing from the African philosophy of Ubuntu, which is particularly meaningful right now after the recent passing on the glory of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who had a profound impact on my life. I had the privilege of studying in South Africa in 96 and actually attending one of the early hearings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that Bishop Tutu really helped to, to lead. And he emphasized that, you know, I am because we are. There is a inescapable, deep mutuality between people and that we, we can't experience our full, full humanity, let alone our full divinity, unless we see it in others and we affirm it in others. And so that has been you know, one of the critical themes in the book that I, that I unpack 
And I really think that the pandemic itself is a real test of our commitment to Ubuntu, or put in Christian terms, our test of our commitment to the golden rule. And, you know, again, you know, we're, we're still in the midst of it, but, but I'm hopeful that we can try to tap into those better angels rather than, you know, some of the other vices that have made the pandemic that much worse. It is an amazing time of polarization, that's for sure. Um, and, and it brings politics of division. And I'm curious about how you feel we can really replace that. How can we replace it with truth and with justice and with, with the common good? What, what are the steps that you feel are actionable or, you know, that you out of this book want us to envision? One of the arguments I make in the book is that you can only replace a kind of dystopian and broken narrative with a, a more hopeful and unifying narrative. And so, you know, at least in the U.S. context, the you know campaign slogan that former President Trump ran on in 2016 of "Make America Great Again" was, you know, for some a very inspirational slogan, but it was kind of a dog whistle for many others, particularly within the black community and other communities of color, because it really begs the question, you know, was America great for African Americans in the 1950s and 60s when they were denied their fundamental rights until the civil rights movement really helped to win those, those rights for everyone? And so, you know, I, I, I'm very intentional about not wanting to make this book, you know, primarily about our politics, although I think there's a lot of healing and renewal that needs to happen in our politics. But, but I do believe in the power of story and the power of narrative, because so often the stories we tell ourselves and the narratives that we share really help to shape our sense of reality and of what's possible and ultimately what we are aspiring to achieve together. And so this is a moment where we, we need to have a kind of shared narrative, both about our past, because if we misunderstand or whitewash some of the ugliness of our past, then we are much more bound to repeat those mistakes. But also we need a shared understanding and you know, hopefully a shared moral vision about where we're going. And that's where the beloved community comes in. Part of that is about the personal change that needs to happen. And I think this is where, you know, some of the themes of the book are both resonate with, and in some ways we're inspired by some of the writings of Henry Nowen, which is that, you know, we have to find ways to humanize the other. We have to find ways to be more vulnerable ourselves as we, you know, really make a commitment to love our enemies, which just feels like such a, a radical commitment in the midst of our politics right now, where there's so much blame and there's so much scapegoating going on. We have to make a commitment to build deeper relationship and do deeper listening and try to not impugn other people's motives. And, you know, of course, that is not going to fix or solve all the challenges that are in our politics, but I think they're really critical. But at the same time, I think we have to find greater courage to debunk so many of the lies that have festered within our politics. And, and clearly one of the biggest ones right now is what's referred to as the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen. Well, that lie has been debunked by all kinds of evidence and, and data. And yet over 70% of Republicans in the United States today still believe that this last election was stolen. And that lie is really a kind of corrupting toxic force within our politics right now. So, you know, I do think we need to have the courage to be able to speak the truth and to try to debunk some of the lies in our midst. And the last thing I'll just say really quickly is that we do have to advocate for, for, for some very significant structural change in our politics. Right now, our political system is incentivizing a lot of zero-sum thinking and a lot of us-versus-them thinking and inaction. Instead, you know, we really want to incentivize a commitment to the common good, a commitment to working together to, co to solve common challenges. And so you know, a couple of things that I think are essential, one is you know, we need to pass legislation that will protect the sacred right to vote for all Americans. Um, right now, there's a, a piece of legislation that is being kind of debated called the John Lewis Voting Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. It's imperative that we pass both of those to try to safeguard our democracy right now. And we need to change the, the kind of rules of the system so that Politicians can't just choose their voters rather than voters choosing their politicians. You know, right now there's so many 
congressional districts that have been gerrymandered that you know the real contest in about 80% of congressional seats takes place in the primary, and it's only 10% of the American electorate that votes in the primary, which means it tends to be the more you know kind of strident, purest voices that are determining who sits in Congress, and then those members of Congress are then accountable to that you know very small percentage that doesn't represent uh, you know the majority of, of Americans. So those are just a couple of concrete examples. But but that the interchange I think is so important, and then the the kind of systemic tr- structural change is, is so important. It's it's interesting to me because as I look at your past and your the life you know prior to the role that you have now, and maybe even prior to this book, what I see is that you've been a, a constant bridge builder. And that's a, an incredible uh, role of probably finding the similarities in situations. But I also feel that you have a real prophetic edge in this particular book, and that to me is really important. It really feels to me like a call forward. And that's where I feel like the prophetic quality of it is is really universal too. What kind of a world do we as people of faith want to build? What kind of a world should we be committed to? And um, maybe you might speak a little bit more about that beloved community and what people living within that would feel about each other and themselves. Yeah, so it's a great question. I mean, let, let me just uh, describe some of the the beatitudes because I think they help paint a picture of what the beloved community looks like. And, and as I speak, as you know, from a Christian theological perspective, you know, another way of describing the beloved community is God's reign of the kingdom of God. And I think the beloved community certainly, as a, a moral vision, you know, is universal in the sense that it can appeal to people of faith and people of no faith and people of other faith traditions. But in our faith tradition, you know, I, I really think that. First and foremost, it's tied to our understanding and our commitment to Imago Dei, that we are made in the likeness and image of God. And that because of that, each and every one of us has inherent worth and dignity. And that, you know, that understanding should make it so much more difficult, if not impossible, for us to want to denigrate or want to uh, assault the dignity of anyone else. And, you know, it's easy to kind of take for granted just how profound the, the Imago Dei ethic and commitment is. But I think it really should, it kind of grounds us in a commitment to equality. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that's fundamental. I think another one is, you know, a much deeper commitment to prioritizing nonviolence. Dr. King understood nonviolence not just as an ethic, but as a way of life. He believed that, you know, violent means of achieving certain just causes would ultimately corrupt the just cause. And, you know, I, I think right now we see such a rampant embrace of violence, whether it's the violence that took place on January 6th, uh, literally just yesterday, a year ago at the U.S. Capitol by a, a kind of uh, mob of insurrectionists that were trying to overturn an election, or the rampant violence of guns and of you know, war as a method to achieve certain ends. So, so this kind of commitment to nonviolence, I think, is, is really essential. Another, you know, commitment that I, I mentioned earlier is this commitment to Ubuntu interdependence, which I think could really change our understanding of our commitments and respond, responsibilities to and for one another. Uh, another one is a, a commitment to what I call radical welcome. You know, throughout mm-hmm. the Hebrew scriptures, there is this constant refrain that we should be the ones that are welcoming the immigrant in our midst, that, you know, if we really think about our faith tradition, that Jesus was at one point a refugee as he mm-hmm. fled mm-hmm. Um, Bethlehem for Egypt in order to escape the edict by Herod of infanticide. And so there's this kind of understanding that when we see the immigrant in our midst, we're really seeing Jesus if we take Matthew 25 seriously. And while that's not easy to translate into complex immigration policy, I think that ethic really needs to be further embraced by the church, where you know we don't scapegoat immigrants in our midst. We understand that they carry the image of God, and that ultimately they are already such a incredibly important part of the church and of our communities. And ultimately, you know, I believe we can fix a broken immigration system and do it in a way that maintains the rule of law, that also shows compassion and provides an opportunity for citizenship for those that are already here. And then the last one that I I emphasize is 
a commitment to dignity for all. Um, when you think about the word dignity, you know, the Latin meaning of the word is, is all about worthiness, that we all have inherent worth, that we don't have to earn that worth, particularly from our Christian theological understanding, that that worth is given to us already. It's inherent within us. And, you know, at the heart of the UN Declaration of Human Rights, there's an emphasis on human dignity. At the heart of what's called the Sustainable Development Goal Agenda, which literally governments of the world agreed to back in 2015, the goal of ending extreme poverty by the year 2030. And, and literally the, the kind of tagline of that agenda is dignity for all. And so, you know, I emphasize these commitments because I think they start to paint a picture of how our lives would be different, our communities and neighborhoods would be different, and our nations and world would be different if we really tried to internalize and then to live out a commitment to each of them. Within the, the chapters of the book, I get into very concrete examples of how you know, various organizations and leaders are practically putting these these beatitudes into practice, and I'd be you know, happy to share some of those stories now. But oh, I'd love to. I'd love to hear them. In fact, I I wanted to hear some of the practical stories because it's very easy for people to feel overwhelmed. And this is a great vision, but it is it possible? Is the question. But I'd love to hear some examples that you're seeing where people are are taking this on. Yeah, absolutely. So there's actually a organization that was founded by a friend of mine from graduate school named Laura, who created an organization in the greater DMV area, so the greater uh, Washington, D.C. area, called Kindred. What she recognized going into the public school system in, in D.C. is that you know, there's both extreme inequality between many of the schools and a real lack of social capital among you know, many of the more disadvantaged students, particularly or disproportionately so students of color. And so she created this organization called Kindred, to work with parents, to basically form these parent groups where they get to build deep relationships with each other, to learn each other's stories, learn about their hopes and dreams for their kids. And then from that relationship or set of relationships to start envisioning what it would look like for their school system to be able to provide the utmost opportunities for all kids, regardless of their background. And as they got to know each other's stories, they realized just how much they shared in common in terms of what they wanted for their, their kids. And, you know, many of the more affluent parents and many of the white parents became morally indignant that so many of these, uh, some of the more disadvantaged kids were being kind of shut out of a lot of opportunities that enabled other kids to succeed. And so the initiative has really helped to put in place a whole series of initiatives that are really helping to create greater equity in our education system. And it's very much this kind of bottom-up approach rather than this, you know, more top-down approach from the policymaking level. Um, so that, that's kind of one that, that has inspired me that's more local. Another, another example is an initiative out in California that's being led by an amazing organization called Faith in Action. And they've been working with churches for churches and also synagogues and, and mosques for many years, helping to build power. They're a, a kind of community, congregational-based organizing network, working on issues of housing and education and poverty and more. But what they realized is that they, they really needed to kind of reframe their work around a sense of belonging, that you know, the, the, the relations they were building were overly transactional. And so they ended up creating this initiative where you know, churches and mosques and, and synagogues would come together in smaller circles to build deeper relationship, to dream together, to vision together through the lens of their faith, what they wanted their communities to look like, and then to kind of identify the best ways that they could, they could, they could practically realize that vision. And it's really kind of reframed the way they're doing their organizing work in California. Um, I'll just mention one last one. There's a, a organization or really a church called, you know, fittingly <laughs> called the Peace Church in uh, a section of D.C. that has some of the highest homicide rates in uh, an area of southeast Washington, D.C. And a, a really dynamic Reverend Delante Goldston leads that church, and he has been leading a whole series of what are called peace walks, where clergy and other community leaders are literally walking the streets 
at night and during the day, particularly on the weekends, to simply be a presence and to build relationships with folks that are hurting, with folks that are young people in particular that are disillusioned and are angry and are you know, kind of acting out that anger in different ways, in some cases that lead to violence. And they've, they've also, in the context of that, been advocating for greater conflict resolution funding and, and, and funding of programs that would really help to you know, help mitigate some of the violence that's happening on the streets of D.C. And it's, it's really had some, some pretty impressive impact. So, you know, some of these things don't require, you know, huge advanced degrees, if you will. <laughs> some do. But, you know, it's really about our, our courage and our commitment to put our faith into action. You, you introduced a term to me in the book, allyship, or, or how do you call it allyship? Is that what you describe it as? Being an ally. Yeah. This was something I... I, I, you know, I, I felt was so um, useful to me. I was, and, and I guess that, that looks, too, to what an individual can do, but also what churches and people of faith and people of uh, varying faiths can do. Tell me a little bit more about allyship. Yeah, so um, I first encountered kind of a different version of allyship. We didn't call it allyship back then. So this is in the 1990s when I was in college. There's an organization that's been around for a long time called the National Coalition Building Institute. And they've been doing work, particularly in college campuses, to really help students bridge some of the divides around race in particular, but also around gender and more recently around sexual orientation. And they really emphasize that we have to be more attuned, more mindful of the stereotypes and the misinformation that we have been fed about other groups. And we also have to understand that all of us have you know, experience in different ways, oppression that's been internalized within us that then can kind of get reenacted in lots of harmful and, and hurtful ways. And so in, in that context, they, they teach students how to interrupt situations of injustice and, or, or, you know, situations where maybe an offensive or harmful thing is said and how to kind of step in that, in, in that situation and be an ally to the person that has been hurt or has been victimized. So fast forward, you know, 20 years, and I had a chance to work with uh, a woman named, an African-American woman named Whitney Parnell, who leads an organization called Service Never Sleeps. And she has really helped to deepen this approach. And, you know, it's it's now kind of encapsulated in this notion of allyship. So the, the notion is that all of us have in different situations, different degrees of privilege or of power. So, you know, in some situations as a black cisgender man, I, you know, will have certain privileges and power compared to a woman in a situation or someone that may be gay or lesbian or transgender in a situation. And, you know, first and foremost, it's important that I'm aware of some of those privileges and sources of power. And that I have, as a result of that, a particular responsibility that kind of ties into the teaching that to whom much is given, much is required, to exercise that, to utilize that privilege and power if I see someone uh, being harmed as a result of, uh, you know, some core part of identity. And, you know, it, it kind of gets into both being more self-aware and being more courageous and more committed to trying to interrupt and to uh, address situations where you know people are misusing their power in ways that harm and that discriminate. And so I found it just to be really a kind of practical set of tools and an ethic that I think could really help to transform our relationships over time. I like that. I like that a lot. Within your book, one of the quotes that is here is, white supremacy has disfigured American democracy from the nation's inception. Um, I don't think we can deny that. I'd, I'd just like you to expand on it just a little bit so that our audience has some feeling because there, there's this wonderful thing that says, uh, you know, uh, all are created equal. But let's take it back and say, what what was the reality? Tell us about this. Yeah, so what, what I what I try to emphasize in the book is that we have to fully understand and in some cases kind of acknowledge and prepare for our whole history. And you know, when we think about the 
brilliance of America and the, and the kind of um, hope of America, it is tied into this American creed of liberty and justice for all. And that is worth cherishing. That's worth realizing for everyone. The, the, the challenge is that, you know, from our inception, our country was founded upon, you know, both the terrible annihilation of the native population and was founded on a, you know, essentially a commitment to anti-blackness that defined black slaves as less than fully human and, and you know, literally shut them out from all of the privileges and benefits of being a citizen of this country. And of course, it wasn't just, you know, uh, enslaved African-Americans, it was women also were denied the right to vote at the beginning of uh, our nation's history, um, Latinos and, and Asians and others. And so in some ways, you know, the American project has really been a project about expanding the we in terms of who the we includes and fighting to ensure that liberty and justice for all truly extends to everyone. And, and so what I try to do in this, in, in, in some parts of this book, is be able to uncover some of those parts of our history that I think so often are hidden or are sometimes denied, not in a way to shame America, but in a way to really help us better understand so that we can make amends where necessary, where we can repair what, what needs to be repaired. And ultimately, because if we believe the words of Jesus, only the truth, and what I say in the book is the whole truth can set us free. And so we need to embrace that whole truth. I mean, I'll give you a couple of recent examples. I mean, it's, it's pretty astounding in some ways that in the 100-year centennial of the horrific massacre in Tulsa, where Black Wall Street was burned down in Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma, 60% of Oklahomans had never heard or read about that history, even though it was one of you know, the kind of dark moments in recent U.S. history, when I say recent, in the last 100 years, um, took place in, in 1921. And the reason why so many Oklahomans had never heard of it, there was a concerted effort to literally erase that history from the libraries, from the history books, from the landscape of, of Tulsa. And there was the courage of many African-Americans and their families who'd been devastated by that massacre that you know, wrote that history and, 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 and refused to, to let it get erased. And so, you know, that's just one of a number of moments that we could point to. I mean, even, even more recently, just making this kind of real time in our conversation, I mean, there's already an effort to whitewash and revise people's understanding of what happened on January 6th, just a year ago, you know, to kind of downplay how serious the violence was, to kind of misrepresent the motives of those who were there to riot. The majority of Republicans, according to polling, view the rioters not as rioters, but as patriots. Um, and so, you know, there's just a, a real struggle, both in terms of our collective memory, how do we mem remember and understand the past, and how do we understand how that continues to show up and impact the future, let alone the, pre or the, the present, let alone the future. You, you write in your book, Something that, that is, is a really challenging statement, and I, I, I quite love it. The pursuit of a post-racial America is a wrong goal. Instead, our aim should be to build an America that is anti-racist and committed to building the beloved community. That's an intriguing statement, anti-racist as opposed to post-racial. Yeah, so, you know, there, there was this kind of notion among some and even became a chant, I think, at some of the rallies right after... Obama was elected our first African-American president, that we had somehow entered this kind of post-racial America. And I admit, I was pretty frustrated at the time because, one, I just thought that that was very naive and not a real depiction of reality, particularly knowing you know, how much inequality, wealth inequality and income inequality is still tied to race, let alone you know, the degree of so many black men are viewed as a you know, criminal or as dangerous and you know, don't, aren't given equal justice under the law. But even beyond that, I really felt like that was kind of the wrong goal. I really feel like what, the, the right goal is to try to build an anti-racist society and you know, certainly builds on the scholarship and the writing of others like Ibram Kendi and, and others as well. But, but the difference is that it, a commitment to anti-racism says that I am going to be committed to 
resisting, to you know, trying to oppose or trying to change anything that helps to reinforce disadvantages and discrimination against African Americans or another group because of the color of their skin. Anything that reinforces a hierarchy of human value has to be addressed and has to be named and has to be resisted. And I think that there's this rich diversity, there's a a rich culture that is now tied into the African-American cultural identity. Now it's, you know, not homogenous, it's it's multi-layered, but, you know, while, you know, race was and is a kind of social construct, we need to get rid of all of the, the parts of that construct that have led to oppression and discrimination and embrace the ways that construct has given birth to a really vibrant culture that is a, is, is a part of the, the American experience and is, you know, a rich part of our current history as well as our past. And so, you know, let me put this another way. So my, my wife is from Jamaica, uh, now a U.S. citizen, but she grew up in Jamaica. And Jamaica, as their motto, has, you know, a similar model to what used to be the model of the United States, which is pluribus unum, out of many one. But what Jamaica added to e pluribus unum was out of one, out of out of many, one people, and this this sense of like peoplehood that the richness and the strength of Jamaica is not this kind of you know uniformity, but instead the tapestry of diversity that makes up the Jamaican people that enables them to kind of see themselves as one nation, um, and I and I think. To me, that's kind of the, the better analogy. That's the better vision to aspire toward than than trying to, you know, aspire toward this kind of um, post-racial America where you have to, you know, ignore or or water down the richness of our diversity. I was moved by Black Lives Matter and the the breadth of what I was seeing across the uh, the arms linked. What 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 can I say? I just I had the feeling that. A generation's coming up that really wants to agree with this vision, really wants to grab it and and embrace it. It it just strikes me that hopefully we're in a well, hopefully we're in a new moment, a new beginning moment. Um, uh, and as you say, it has to be incredibly truthful about the the present and the past. But it's an interesting time. Um, I feel like you inherited the unfinished business of the civil rights movement. It, it's kind of etched in your heart, and and I think I can see you picking up this mantle of John Lewis and and Dr. King and carrying it forward. Um, and you say that at the core, the beloved community is an engine of reconciliation. Are you hopeful that we can reconcile at a, a much deeper and richer level? In, in spite of what we're seeing right now, I mean, in spite of the polarization, I long to see what you have written in this book come true. Well, l- let me just share a little bit about my own origin story, if you will. Mm-hmm. So my parents made the controversial decision to get married to each other in 1968, uh, same year that Dr. King was assassinated. And it was controversial because my mother is black and my father's white. And they got married just a year after interracial marriage was legalized through the loving versus the state of Virginia um, Supreme Court case. And they instilled in me this deep and abiding belief that not only was I made in the image of God, but that my diversity, and then in a larger sense, our nation's diversity, our world's diversity was a strength and not a weakness. It was a gift and not a liability. And they also instilled in me what you just said, that my generation, Generation X, inherited the unfinished business of the civil rights movement. And so I took that really seriously. I mean, I kind of got internalized within me, and I studied as much as I could about the civil rights movement and read everything I could, not just by Dr. King, but by other civil rights leaders. And one of the things that made a huge impression on me, in addition to the beloved community moral vision, was this notion and, and commitment to redemptive suffering. And I actually think it you know, very much kind of tied into so much of what Henry Nowen had to say and what, what he lived. And... I think that's really important for the current moment that we're in because I think we have to have a deeper understanding and commitment to what reconciliation is going to look like. To me, reconciliation starts with some kind of confession or acknowledgement of harm that has been done in the past. 
And then that opens the possibility for a restoration of right relationship. It opens the, the, the door to forgiveness, which is also crucial. And the forgiveness then enables us and empowers us to both to heal some of the, the hurt and the trauma from, from those wounds. And it enables us to find greater common purpose together and to be able to move forward in a new direction. And so, you know, I think sometimes we try to skip different pieces of that or that we only want to go to forgiveness and not necessarily have to do some of the hard work of truth telling and of acknowledgement and of, of repentance. And so I'm hopeful because I do think that there's a growing movement in the United States that is really trying to do some of that harder work of truth telling and of repentance. It's actually a whole movement called the Truth, Reconciliation, and Racial Healing Movement that, that and well, sorry, Racial Transformation Movement that is um, done some great work in places like Greensboro, North Carolina, and other cities around the country. And then, you know, I, I think that there's this opportunity in front of us, particularly after what we experienced together in the, the summer of 2020 that I think did open the eyes of a lot of people and broke the hearts of a lot of people about just how much of a crisis there is when it comes to racialized policing and police violence, that it creates the opportunity for, for some of that um, reconciliation to happen in a, in a deeper way. Um, the last thing that gives me hope is that, you know, I think this is really <laughs> the work of, of uh, Christian discipleship. That discipleship, we, we, you know, let me put it this way, we have to see that a core part of discipleship is discipling people into a commitment of anti-racism and out of a commitment of, of racism. And I'm seeing more of that happen in many parts of the church. Obviously, there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done. But instead of kind of seeing, you know, the issue of racism and, and white supremacy as purely political issue or as a optional issue. I think we need to keep pushing the church to see it as an integral issue that literally will define the integrity of our faith moving forward. And I, I'm hopeful that that can can happen. Mm, that's good. That's excellent. You've answered a lot of my questions. I think probably the question more than anything else I wonder about is I want to take you back and say, how has Henry now influenced you? You've obviously understood what he had to offer. And I think probably Henry's uh, place of meeting people was in his honesty of his own brokenness. And that was something which is, in some ways, we find so irresistible because people, and then as he received his sense that he was a beloved child of God, that he could give to others and say to every single person, you're beloved, you're in the image of God. God loves you. He's loved you when he formed you in your mother's womb and he will... You know, you're on a journey that's going to return you to this God of love. Uh, and it struck me as I, I read at the root of the beloved communities is people that understand their belovedness. And I think that's what Henry gave us as a gift. No question. No question. I think, um, you know, when I when I unpack the word beloved community, you know, I talked more in this conversation about the, the community part, but the beloved part is equally important, that we are beloved by God that God knows everything about us and loves us anyway. Yeah. And all of, you know, with all of our, our <laughs> mistakes, our vices, our, our you know, egos and, and everything else in between. And, you know, that, that sense of unconditional selfless love, I think is so important to the life and to the witness of Henry now. And it's so important for what we should be aspiring to. I also just think I mean, the, the book that had the biggest impact on me was the a wounded healer. And, you know, I think particularly in, in activism, which has kind of been more my sense of, of uh, calling in ministry, there's a tendency to, you know, not want to show weakness, to show strength, to show confidence, to, you know, show that you, you know, in some cases it can even be kind of arrogance that, that you are on the right side of history. And what I've realized is that, you know, while, you know, certainly some of those things are important they also can be vices in their own right, and that it can really lead us down a path of self-righteousness and of ultimately burnout. Because, you know, if you're not in touch with some of your own woundedness and your own brokenness, it's very hard to offer a message, a gospel of wholeness to others. 
So I've tried to be more attuned and in touch with that in myself and, and also just be more vulnerable about it in the context of, you know, some of the struggles that I have or some of the questions that still remain for me as I, I try to do this work of, of justice and peace. That's such a good word. That's such a good word. Adam, tell me something that Sojourners is involved in that will inspire us. Certainly. So, you know, Sojourners has been around. We're actually celebrating our 50th anniversary, our 50th birthday this year. And, you know, we have our, our magazine, our digital publication. You can learn more at Sojourner.net. But we also have been committed to helping to equip and inspire Christians of all types and stripes to put their faith into action for peace and justice. And, you know, we currently have campaigns that are active on immigrant rights and immigration reform around policing and just our justice system. We work on both poverty in the United States, but also global poverty. But the campaign that I really want to emphasize right now is so timely because I feel like we have a very narrow window to try to protect the right to vote and really try to protect our democracy in the United States. It is a campaign that we're calling Faith United to Save Our Democracy. And it's really working to push back against the big lie that the last election was stolen. And more importantly, it's working to equip and to mobilize faith leaders to use their voices to try to ensure that future elections can be free, fair, and safe, and that we can protect what John Lewis described as a sacred right to vote. And so we're working in 10 key states to do that, to you know, do nonpartisan work to ensure that everyone is able to exercise the right to vote. And we're trying to pass national legislation, um, in particular, the John Lewis Voting Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. You know, it's interesting that, you know, the rest of the world has for generations looked to America in leadership in the area of democracy. None of us envisioned that democracy could be so fragile, that it could be so easily um, brought down in a way, you know, and, and but isn't it, 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 it seems like it's piece by piece, little by little, and therefore the response needs to be, how do we build up the walls? How do you secure things and and let the truth be known? Uh, all of which is very important. I, I'm very deeply grateful for the role that Sojourners plays in in the world, in, in America, but in a broader world as well. Something I loved in the book, by the way, uh, and I wondered if you would be willing to read it. It was the letter you wrote to your sons. You are a father of two young boys growing up, and I loved what you wrote in that letter. Would you be willing to share that? Certainly. So let me just give a little context. So I wrote this this letter before, it was the summer before the 2020 election. So I didn't actually know what the outcome would be. And I kind of wrote it intentionally that way. And I wrote it in, in part because this is in the beginning of the book, but the 2016 election was certainly one of the you know, major events that inspired me to write this book. And my then five-year-old son, Joshua, came into our room at about three in the morning and he just looked really distraught. And he's like, mom and daddy, I really need to know who won the election. And, you know, my wife and I had a wrestle sleep that night and we're still processing it ourselves. And we're like, well, we think Mr. Trump won. And he said, I don't understand how someone who has said and done such mean things could win. And I really was speechless. I didn't know how to respond to him. And it wasn't because, you know, someone that is a Republican or is more conservative than I am won. It was because someone who had appealed to and stoked so many of the worst impulses of American history, particularly in terms of racism and sexism, misogyny, was able to win. And I really feel like I kind of failed my son in that moment. And he saw that I was really struggling. He was like, it's okay, mom, mommy, daddy, you're going to make it okay. And I admit, like, I, I felt the weight of the world on my shoulders in that moment. And so what I resolved is that partly writing this book was my way of explaining to myself and to my son and to everyone else kind of how do we move from this, this moment of what I call toxic polarization to the beloved community? Because I think that's really the choice in front of us. So, you know, fast forward three years, I'm in Washington state, which is where I was born and grew up until I was 16. I'm literally sitting on what I call my thinking rock in this place <laughs> called Truckada Bay. And these are the words that I felt God, God's spirit laid on my heart. So, sons, this country has been terribly divided since even before the Constitution was agreed upon and our nation was born. It was bitterly divided over the evil of slavery, 
the annihilation of the native population, the subjugation of women, and so much more. Division has been a defining feature of our politics, but so have struggle and hope. What all of us 200 plus years later can agree on and still should embrace are the ideals that America was built on. Those ideals of equality, dignity, freedom, and inalienable rights are precious and worth fighting for. They're also based on and resonate with the very ideals and value of our faith. But these ideals are not a given. They do not come easily or without a price. They must be continually fought for and expanded to include all people. We, the people, in these yet to be fully united United States of America includes you, it includes me, your brother, mother, and everyone who is in this incredible country. Despite all of its flaws and wounds, we continue to believe in these ideals and that they can regularly be reborn and more fully realized. Our faith says that Christ can make all things new, and that applies to this nation as well. Our faith enlists us to be part of the vision and work of making all things new, of building the beloved community and forming a more perfect union. Oh, thank you. I, I love the fact that in that letter to your sons, you also bring it back to the fact that Christ in, is our strength to do this. And he's really called us to be salt in the world, to be uh, a light in the world. He's called us to hold those values that he gave us, you know, that every single person has value and matters. That's the bottom line. I have loved your book, and I want to encourage those who are listening, whether you're in the United States or you're beyond its borders, this is a book worth reading. It's got a really prophetic edge to it. It's uh, for the times we're living in where we see so much um, polarization and struggle, I want to encourage you to read this book. I want to encourage you to share the vision of the beloved community. It's been life-giving to me, and I promise you it will be life-giving to you. I also want to encourage you to visit Sojourners. It's a great, great force in the United States. I'm so grateful for it, and, uh, uh, you know, a great source of of ideas and of actions and of... uh, good things to read and great prompts to live by. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much, Adam, for being with us today. I I really enjoyed talking with you and I have savored your book. Thank you. Thanks so much, Adam. Great joy to talk with you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. What an honor for me to spend time with Reverend Adam Russell Taylor, the author of A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. Henry Nouwen was inspired by and in turn was a source of spiritual inspiration for sojourners when he was alive. Jim Wallace and Henry Nouwen were friends. I am delighted to see the wonderful work sojourners continues to do now under the leadership of Adam Russell Taylor. For more resources related to this program, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You'll find links to anything mentioned today, as well as book suggestions. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd be so grateful if you'd take time to give us a review or a thumbs up and feel free to pass it on to your friends and family. Thanks for listening. Until next time.